Once upon a time. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week we breathe new life into old stories from folklore and mythology, from the mysterious landing of the old Celtic gods to the epic wars fought by Cúchulainn and Queen Maeve, right down to the petty squabbles between headstrong mortals and roguish fairies. We already have a huge collection available with a new episode every Wednesday. This is not just a podcast for folklore fiends, but for anyone who enjoys a good story. And who doesn't love a good story? My name is Kevin C. Olhan, and I am your host and your fireside bard. Wherever you are in the world, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello, you're very welcome to another episode of FNI Rap Chat, sponsored by Octovid Film Equipment Hire and wildcard distribution. I uh, hope everyone is doing well out there. There's a lot of filming going on at the moment, which is fantastic to see, and the weather is pretty good. Uh, so we hope everyone is getting stuck into projects and uh, looking forward to making a, a good summer of it, hopefully. Um, so in today's podcast, is someone I, I've wanted to get on for a while, ever since seeing uh, Gaza in the cinema about a year and a half or two years ago. And uh, it's it's a film that has had a, a huge impact on me, um, and especially when Gaza is in the news, um, you know I I always think of this film, and it's a a, a completely immersive film. And if you're if you want to have a better understanding of the film and of of the situation, and you haven't seen the film, I I really urge you to go and watch it. It's on YouTube, and you can rent it for three or four euro um unfortunately films like this uh don't end up on the kind of mainstream streamers uh unfortunately um an example of that recently was uh the dissident uh, about the saudi arabia uh situation and uh, a film that wasn't picked up by by mainstream um streamers uh even though it had won all these awards at Sundance and things like that. Um, but Gaza is a is a film that really should be seen by everyone. Um, it, it's uh, heartbreaking, um, but so beautiful as well. Um, so yeah, we're, I had a brilliant chat with Gary Keane, one of the co-directors uh, who's based in, in Donegal. Uh, so it's a phone chat. Um, and just to to hear the the challenges like the unbelievable challenges of making this film um inspiring um and and heartening uh, as a filmmaker to hear uh, and just that grit and determination and and bravery um uh it's it's just astounding really um so this this is a a really important listen for any any filmmaker i think um so yeah, let's go to Gary Keane.
So I'm on the line with Gary Keane. Are you up in Donegal at the moment? Is that where you are? I am. I'm on the top of a mountain in Donegal. Great. And that's where you're from originally? Yeah, I'm not living in the house. I was born and raised in, but yeah, we, we, um, I actually met a Dublin woman after travelling the world who dragged me back to Donegal. I had no intention of going back home. <laughs> but uh, cause I left here when I was about 16 originally and headed off, you know, but um, she fell in love with the place and that's we good. Dublin, so we moved up here and uh, haven't looked back since I was ninety-seven. Wow, you're not the first person I've actually heard with a, a similar story. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I, you know, for obvious reasons, uh, Gaza has been on my mind. I, I saw it a, a few years ago uh, in in the cinema, and it was such a powerful documentary. And I I, I think about it a lot, especially obviously at obvious moments when it's when the place is in the news, I was just wondering, what, how do you feel, and we will get more into the nitty-gritty of it later, but just first off, how do you feel when when you see Gaza on the news and this kind of constant cycle of war? How does it affect you now, having spent so much time there? Um, I suppose the word would be sickened, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean, we don't have to, you know, our crowd don't have to kind of wait for Gaza to pop up on the, on the news feeds to be, to be present because since the minute and day we went into Gaza, we've had a, a constant line of communication open. I don't think there's one day goes past in any week or any year that I don't talk to Gaza right. or someone in Gaza, you know. So it's part of the family now, you know. It's like making a call to your brother or your sister, your ma, your dad, like the, the calls is in or the text them back or the photographs are sent or every, every little thing is shared. So we... We were uh, we were prepared for it because everyone there was prepared for it. You know, it, it was it was escalating to such a degree that that we knew something was going to happen, and they certainly knew something was going to happen. So it was uh, it was no surprise. Us. It was just pure sadness and, uh, and 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 worry for the people we know there that they'd stay safe. You know, which they nearly didn't. One particular friend over there and his family got into an awful situation. You know, so we're we're dreadfully worried about them and and just. Ah, heart-wrenching stuff, you know, when you, when you just, when you, you know, the, the thoughts of making a film back in 2018, 19, and it'll be even as relevant today, is not what we said, you know, we set out to make a film, but the fact that that film could still be relevant in, in another 10 years' time is just, it's just frightening, you know, and, but there's nothing to suggest it mightn't be, you know, that the situation might not have changed to any great degree, I know that just bubble change of uh, power structure in Israel, but I just don't see with the, the people that are going, going in and selling Netanyahu. I don't, I don't see any great shift in, in their in their policies. You know, yeah. Um, certainly in regard to in regard to Gaza, and um, so even in the West Bank, I don't think I don't think the settlements are going to stop. So I don't think there's going to be any great shift in, in anything on that in that on that um, on that side. So I just don't. Where where do you look for hope? in that situation, you know, and that's, that's the problem with Gaza. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's hopeless because they're, 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 they can't do anything, you know, they can't, they can't function properly to do anything. They can't, they haven't got the facility or the, or the means to do anything about it. You know, they're just reliant on outside parties negotiating on their behalf and the outside parties are, you know, so unreliable and have shown to be so unreliable and self-serving to such a degree that you kind of go, but who is actually out there batting for them, you know? And the truth is that <clears throat> it might on the face of it seem that there are those, you know, you hear about brokerage has been done with, with uh, 
you know, Egypt and all that, uh, Jordan or whatever, Qatar. But at the, at the end of the day, there's always agendas behind that stuff, you know. It's always mm-hmm. about land and control and and um, and you just don't see any genuine interest from any side to actually broker that deal that is just and, and, and right, you know. Mm-hmm. So, look, at I, you know, you have to retain some semblance of hope, otherwise... Certainly, the people there wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the mornings. But at the same time, you kind of go behind behind the talk of hope. You kind of despair a little bit, you know. Yeah, and the media coverage is is so one sided. I mean, there's just so few films like Gaza. And the, how? What was the reception like for you guys in terms of getting it out there? Was it? Did you run up against a bit of a, a wall? Well, if you roll back even before we got it out there, because getting it out there was a, a huge struggle yeah. um, to begin with. But but the, the getting it to the point where we had a film was was crazy. Like like when you think about the first frame of, of footage that ended up in Gaza, we shot in early uh, twenty fourteen. You know, right? Um, and then we went in and for an extended shoot in twenty fifteen on the back of some um, film board Screen Ireland. Um, with, um, development funding at the time, you know, on the shoestring. So there's only the two of us, myself and Andrew McConnell. Yeah. And uh, we lived there for about six weeks and shot every single day. And we were researching as we were going to and trying to find characters and trying to tease out the story as we do. But we actually, you know, we, we came back with um, what we consider to be such strong material. And then Mick Mahan, we had no money to, to pay anybody at this stage, so Mick was going to edit us and we put together a good trailer with myself and Andrew and we got it out there and the reaction to the trailer was, was overwhelming like initially you know and we thought Jesus this is this is great you know we have this film funded in a year or so and have it wrapped up by at least 2016 2017 you know yeah um, and then <laughs> the reaction to the trailer was just the kind of a, a tease because then we just started getting doors closed and it was everywhere we looked like Right. It was crazy. It was. It was actually to the point where you kind of go, "Well, hang on a second, what's going on here?" You know. Um. You know, we get to. You know, Brendan Byrne came on board. He's a great producer, Brendan. I know Brendan for Jesus thirty odd years. You know, and, and Brendan guy, was yeah. of the same mindset as. But Brendan had spent all his career funding films, and he absolutely looked at the trailer and looked at the stuff we had and said, "Yeah, lad, sit back. I'll just go to the usual people we go to, and they're going to love this." You know. Mm. Um. And he did, and they did, <laughs> and then. Uh, we got some great interest on the ground and the first phone calls and emails to come back were extraordinarily positive and we thought, yeah, great, look at this, is, we were preparing ourselves for all the other shit you have to do to get into Gaza, you know, all the behind scenes, like in run around you have yeah. to do on applications and trying to get in, it's, it's, it's a huge issue. How does that work Probably. actually? And had you been kind of building up contacts over the years? Yeah, I mean that's that's a long story too. But but just just to finish the other point, yeah. so I, like I mean we we get all those emails back from all those well-known funding agencies, and then well, positive emails, and then it would stop, mm. like literally stop. You know, communication would stop. And Brian would go, I don't know where they've gone. Like this never happened before. And it was as if you know the idea was really light at ground level, and then it would go up to whoever at the top table, and they go, No, shut that down. That's gone. We're not doing that. We're not getting involved in this. It's happened like that. No way. Up there, you know. So all our funding sources dried up to such a degree that we actually worried for years and years and tried for years that it would never get this made. Never, never get it across the line. You know. Yeah. So that's what. That's where you. That's the first reaction you get. You kind of realize, certainly from the film industry, and we. This has been mirrored in the distribution issues we've had. You know, that 
there's an awful lot of people in our industry who didn't want this film to be made and certainly didn't want anything to do with it, you know. And then uh, another huge cohort of people who don't want to touch it or don't want to put it on their platform, you know. So that's what you're dealing with, Gavi, you know, it's all political. Everything that goes on there, everything that happens is political. It's not, there's, there's no humanitarian side, there's no anything. It's pure politics and bad politics, you know. Mm. Sorry, but to answer your other question, you're getting in is, uh, is a real problem. Because you see that um, the Israeli government, they, they control exactly who goes in and out of Gaza. So it's completely on their agenda. You know, you have to work on their criteria. Mm. And they don't want filmmakers in under no circumstances. And we'll, we'll blatantly tell you that we do not allow filmmakers to come to Gaza. You know, the initial, the first, one of the first letters I sent them, which was from the, the film board at the time. And uh, it was a letter stating that they were backing the project and blah, blah, blah. It was a bonus three day gig. We were who we were, and we were trusted uh, people in the industry, and you know they had our blessing and all the rest. But little did I know, I thought that was a great, you know, letter to have to get access to to a visa, or whatever you needed. And uh, <laughs> came back a very straightforward answer: going, no, we do not allow filmmakers to enter Gaza. Sorry, uh, your application has been refused. So that was a real eye opener back then. And then uh, that happened, and then. I started, you know, really getting down to the nitty-gritty with, with Andrew with McConnell because Andrew had been in there since about 2011 and gone in there a few times to do photo, photo projects. That's how I first came across Andrew, you know, from a photo uh, end of things. And uh, and he always got in through his own agency, his journalistic-type agency, you know, photojournalism agency. And when we dug down deep into the criteria, we realised that they only really wanted the news media to go in. That's all they left because really they wanted to control the output. And by just letting in news media, they were to a large degree controlling the output because they knew what it was going to get with little, little um, news items, you know, um, little things and little like just reports from the border and that, you know, where they, they could put up their side of it as well. So they knew and they know what they were getting by just letting in journalists. So they had to wrap our head around that one, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, I became a journalist very quickly. Um, okay. A news journalist, <laughs> um, and and it was just it was just hard. It was just really, really, really difficult the whole process. And you actually all you get when you get to the final stages of it, or you think you've got to the final stages, all you get is an interview in the in the press office over in Jerusalem in in, in Israel, you know, and Israel. So you don't know. You, you you have to try and plan an entire massive shoot because you don't go to all the bother getting in and all the bother that that entails without making sure that when you are in, you can get a maximum amount of work done. So you're, you're preparing yourself for five, six weeks of a shoot. And yet, you don't know until you finish your interview over in the, the, the GPO over there whether or not you're going to get across the border. Right. So you could be sent back home immediately with a whole six-week shoot plan out the window, you know. So it's, it's, done, and it's, done, it's done a nice edge all of the time when you're talking about getting into the house. And then, you know, the first time I went in in 2015. On the way, I got, managed to get in and all the hassles of that, and we had great shoes and met some wonderful people and forged some great um, alliances and friendships. And on the way back out, I was given an awful time. I searched, left standing in a, in a cell, basically naked, standing on top of a, a grid where all the soldiers could walk down below and look up. It wow. brought me back to a book I read about her many, many years ago by a and I can't remember the name of just now. And she was explaining that that's what used to happen. And for women, especially who were stripped and standing on an open grid mm. with everyone able to stand underneath and look up, it's just the most humiliating experience ever, you know? Mm. Um, so 
if you had a if you had a problem getting in and you had a problem um organizing that end of things by the time you dealt with the treatment you got on the way out you'd be thinking twice about going back again you know yeah um no it didn't put us off obviously but um but you know what i mean like it's just every every turn is is, is a problem yeah you guys must have this incredible grit and determination to get it done because <laughs> you know, as a filmmaker you know we, we come up against so many challenges but like I've never heard anything like that you know did, did you guys help each other get through that or you know did you, I suppose is it just something that you knew you, you, you had to do yeah, I think the latter really. I mean, we never even talked about it, to be honest. There was never a moment of, what are we doing? I mean, should we do this and should we keep doing this? I, yeah. I don't ever remember one of those conversations ever. Like, at any stage in the process, you know, right. it, it, it did go from 2014 right through to the end of 2000, well, the beginning of 2019. So, yeah, it was um, it was just pure and simple. Like, this, once you get once, once an issue gets under your skin and once you decide that, once you put yourself out there that you're going to do whatever you can to create a voice for these people and once you've met the people then there's no going back because of the most gorgeous set of human beings that I've ever come across in my life you know so what do you do you don't turn your back on that <laughs> be it a filmmaker or any other human being that's, uh, that's uh, has any common decency you don't you don't make a pledge to do something like that look at people straight in the eye and tell them this is what you want to do and this is what you want them to do with you and then turn your back on them because you, you've been part of a situation where you're, you're finding it hard but it's like an hard, you're trying to gather, you know? Yeah. But the, the minute you, you sign up for that from day one, you get, there's no turn on back, you know? Yeah. There's nothing worth stopping the minute, so. Right. We would have, you know, we would have, we would have um, made it under any circumstances. You know, we would have put, we could have put something together after the first few shoots, even if we weren't allowed in again. You know, there was, there was, a, there was a film there from, there was a film of sorts there from the beginning. Not mm. the beginning, but you know, from the initial stages, the initial shoots, not the film we wanted it to be, but we certainly would have put out something um, that had the same heart about it, that just wouldn't have probably had the same um, scope yeah. or, or, or ambition about it, do you know what I mean? But it wouldn't be the film, um, and we would have made our point. But now we were going to, we were going to stick it out to the very end until literally every stone was unturned and every penny was spent and every visit could be had and sent and you know every answer we could squeeze out of it yeah and I, I, I read that you, it, you had this idea of the tableau and I think it, it works so beautifully well Um, you get I don't know you get such a feel for the place and the people and was it a case of you know you're you're looking for stories are they bringing you stories? Was it a case of like, did you have to whittle down stories? What was that process? Did you kind of shoot everything and then work it out in the edit, or how, how, what was your process there in terms of stories? Well, it wasn't quite that haphazard. Well, first of all, from day one, myself and Andrew and Mick um, agreed uh, immediately that this was going to be a kind of a tapestry piece that we weren't we weren't on the lookout for one or two or three characters that were going to drive the entire narrative and then feed in around that. We, we didn't feel we could do the place justice or the story justice by doing yeah. that, you know, and yeah. insofar as it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult uh, undertaking when you, when you decide you're going to cast multiple characters and, and leave them in and out of each other and spend, you know, not so much time with each of them because obviously you can't. Um, and, and, you know, some will take more of a lead than others, but, but by spreading the net out that wide, we left ourselves a huge task, but a task that, that 
we did rigorously, you know, we, we cast rigorously. We, we, you know, in 2015, we hired Fadi and then he became our fixer and, and we, we did a deal, had a deal, but we had an understanding of Fadi that was so interested in the projects and wanted to be involved so much that he was prepared to work away without money in the background and feed us with characters and we'd feed him with storylines that we'd love to follow and he'd go out and he'd look and he'd shoot and he'd do little sample interviews and send us back photographs. So the casting process went on literally from, from the beginning of 2015 right through to, to 2019, you know, um, and we cast all of the time and we met people and we spoke to people and we wrote to people and we discussed the situation with people. So we probably had about, we had that cast of characters that we ended up with plus probably about, God, I can't remember exactly how many, seven or eight more that we would have shot storylines at six or seven long. Right. Um, that just didn't make the cut, not for any other reason other than we, we, you know, we no, we ran out of road, you know, with with what we wanted to do, and they just we couldn't find a place for them. Their, their stories were great, and it was a, yeah, a, a, a bit more difficult process than usual um, in an edit to get into any stories because you know we spent time with these people and and wanted to represent their view, and all their views were completely valid and well told. It was just we just literally, you know, we couldn't. We would have ended up with a three-hour film, you know, and we didn't think that was what was needed either, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so invariably, we had to drop a few storylines, but there was nothing haphazard about it, you know. Mm. But from the first day that Andrew came across young Ahmed in the sea, and and fell in love with him and his family, and and the idea of a story, we just kind of started casting around him, and we knew we wanted a young girl that that was going to come from a different side of the track to kind of offset the, the male, female, the young 17, 16, 17, 15, actually 14, 15 when we first started filming with them, yeah. you know, that would give us that perspective and then we, we knew we'd include their families in it and then we knew we always wanted to, uh, to cast the taxi driver because we wanted to create that little stage where um, you'd, be, you'd be able to take the viewer on a, on a kind of a road trip around Gaza too to open that end of it up and to create a little stage within his taxi that yeah, would be free free and easy to for people to sit in and have just those normal conversations that people have and try and yeah. get, a, get your ear on how they talk to each other in, in that sort of intimate setting. And, fly on the wall. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. we just wait the car and let it go, you know. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we knew, you know, we knew we, we always wanted to bring in the arts in some capacity. So, you know, we did a lot of work with writers and that theatre, Ali, the theatre director guy. And, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to represent young, old, male, female, generational stuff, you know, class stuff. We didn't obviously cast as many females as we would have liked. And we tried our best, but, you know, we are working within a society where an awful lot of women just didn't want to talk to us. They talked to us with the cameras off, obviously, and mm-hmm. we're a great company, but they just didn't want to appear on camera. So, right. you know, so, that, you know, we, we, we met, we, we had to face obstacles like that. But then we knew we had the likes of Carmen and our mother, who were hugely strong characters and, and, and huge driving forces within. And so at least we knew we could represent uh, their view, albeit they were more middle class, the, the more... Mm-hmm. You know the, the more working class families and women just just didn't want to talk to us much at all. So unfortunately, we never landed any any great degree their story. But we hope that we give an overall picture to other characters and to other scenarios where we kind of paint it as as broad as this picture as we could possibly paint of the place and give give that representation that we knew wasn't out there. That was the thing. You see, we we we've been looking at Gaza forever and, and uh, the footage she was coming out and we, uh, you know, I remember even doing a little um, a little kind of a survey thing back in the days where everyone I met I, I asked them a simple question what do you think Gaza is? Mm. Basically, what, how do you think it, you know, what is it, what comes into your mind when you, 
And an awful lot of the, the feedback we were getting was that people had this image of us being a big refugee camp, you know, like a temporary tented mm. nearly refugee camp, you know, with, yeah. with kind of the odd dwelling here and there. But, you know, nobody really had seen it to the degree where, unless they knew it for some other reason, to the degree that, that, that this is a proper functioning society of two million people with cities and towns and villages and agriculture and industry and, and, and life, you know, um, that just isn't, that's just been strangled and, and been smothered, you know. Yeah. So from that point of view, we knew that if we could get that spread, that depth of, of new of the place, you know, that it would be new and, and it would be um, surprising to people and, and that's the reaction we got from only released film, yeah. Yeah, and was did you kind of become part of the furniture? You must become very recognisable in all these spots. And what was there any hostility that you had to deal with? Well, when Andrew shot the war, he obviously put himself in serious harm's way, and nobody was passing any remarks to what he was doing because he was so busy just trying to keep himself alive. And when yeah. we went in and. 2015 together we once we were in we found it very easy I mean the people are so easy to, to, to be with and to work with and to, to be with you know they're, they're just a lovely 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 people and um, so once we were on the ground there it was um, it was we had no issues at all back in 2015 but when we the last visit we made now in 2018 things had changed enormously mm. I mean over those three years Tension Federation to such a degree that there was a different vibe in the place altogether. And we had a, an awful time of it, really, because we spent, we spent literally two years trying to raise the money and, and, and manoeuvre our way into, into there. We wanted to bring, you know, a sound man with us for the first time because mm. I was doing sound up until then and I'm no sound man, believe yeah. you me. And, yeah. um, and then we wanted to bring Nick Mahan in, the editor, because we, we all felt that it would be hugely beneficial yeah. It proved to be having him on the ground doing daily, nearly like a right. like a drama, you know, and turning around so we could develop storylines there and make sure that because we knew we weren't coming back in again, you see. So this right. was the last ditch uh, push to 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 get the film made. So we couldn't be there without without any with unfinished storylines or unfinished narratives or unfinished um, pictures. You know what I mean? So massively important to the film that that Mick um, came over for that time. But so four of us landed over. <laughs> into a flat over there and while we while I was organising the, the production and trying to get schedules in place and ringing people and meeting people and whenever Andrew went out to do the film and he was just getting itchy to get out on the road so he decided to go out and just take a few GVs with the uh, the fixer Fabi and the driver um, Ahmed and um, next thing we just didn't come home you know right. um, and this was the first day we were there and everybody was freaked and everyone was kind of going where are they you know and Fixer's mother was on to us going, she, you know, she didn't know where they were, she hadn't heard from them, there was no phone uh, messages coming, there was nobody telling anybody who, where anybody was, so we were all really, really worried, and this went on until about, I don't know, the middle of the night anyway, when eventually uh, Fatty's mother rang us and said that she had found out, by just putting the word out, that the three of them had been arrested and were in this series Hamas facility, interrogation facility, and didn't know anything else, you know. So of course the next few days well, we we started getting uh, getting some word they, they they let Fadi out for a while but told them to come back in at a certain time. But they were being interrogated heavily that Hamas thought they were spies, you know. Wow. I think um what we gleaned from the situation was that Andrew either pointed the camera in the wrong direction inadvertently. 
Right. Um, there must have been, you know, because they have all, all these hidden facilities over there and training facilities and all the rest. So he might have pointed us at a distant building and they thought he was filming it or whatever. Okay. They, they actually looked at the footage and he was after taking a shot of uh, some potato pickers right. who have potato farms up by the up by the, the wall, up by the, the border, the Israeli border. Right. And uh, they, they couldn't wrap their head around why anybody would come to Gaza <laughs> and take a shot of a potato picker. The situation and the circumstances going on there, so you must be a spy if you're doing that. You're, you're trying to conceal something, obviously. Right. If you're taking a shot of someone, someone picking pick potatoes in the fields when you get to Gaza on your first day. Okay. <laughs> wow. So, uh, you know, you can see where their paranoia stemmed from, but yeah. at the same time, it was a worrying period because we were being told by everyone that they were just going to throw the lads back into the flat, give us... Um, give us uh, half an hour to gather things and drive us to the border and throw us out, you know. Right. Um, so, and we also got back word by Hamas that we were under house arrest the rest of the crew, so we couldn't leave the apartment and they put armed guards down the bottom door to make sure we couldn't leave. So we were, we were wedged <laughs> in there as well for, uh, for three days. I and mean, it was hilarious, you know, because we were told that we were the edit suite sort of, sorry, I say hilarious, it wasn't particularly hilarious at the time, but in, in hindsight, um, we had the edit suite and we were told that what the math we're going to do now any minute now was we're going to come in and confiscate all our drives and see what we were shooting in. <laughs> so it was a mad panic to, to dump dump material and dump uh, transcodes and, and hide hide drives in the most um, you know, safest places we could find within the flat and, <laughs> and um, put ourselves forward as being, you know, being being good boys and girls. So yeah, but they never they never did that. They never, they never bothered coming near the flat. But we were put under house arrest, and even after that, when things calmed down, they didn't throw us out for whatever reason. And, and but there, they demanded. Yeah, hmm? and and there is you you did get an incredible footage of Hamas rally. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, that was done. Yeah, from earlier rallies actually. Okay. The, 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 the stuff that we, we we didn't really get a whole pile once they became conscious of okay. the scene there. You know, right. um, they were from they were from more kind of rallies that were done in the early days. Um, which was more representative of, of the, you know, of what they were in the place, really, you know. Mm. But what they what they'd become was a much more secretive, much more kind of difficult thing to film, you know. Right. Okay. Um, and we really didn't want to jeopardise the entire shoot by by stepping over the mark, which we nearly did there, obviously, with the lads being arrested, you know. So there was a there was a fine line we we had to, to follow, and so every day after that arrest. We had to, um, the fixer had to tell them exactly who we were talking to, exactly where we were going, mm. exactly what the point of what we were doing was. And every time we'd take off in the car, we'd, you know, get photographs taken of us by the armed guard outside the apartment, and then a wagon would follow us all over the strip, uh, Hamas wagon. Okay. We were actually, we were actually even half forced to take on one of their, one of their guys as a, as a security man. We put our foot down, down and we said no, because all they wanted to do was plant someone on the crew that could keep an eye on us, you know. Right. But eventually, we were there for about five weeks or four weeks or whatever it was, and eventually, after about a week, I'd say, they got fed up with us. Right. We, we, they lost interest in us and they just disappeared. And then suddenly we were kind of, we were walking out of the apartment and there was no armed guards and there was no one following us. So they kind of left us to our own devices after that. But yeah, it was very tense, you know. You, you had to just watch what you were doing and watch where you were going and where you were pointing the camera, you know. It's just, I watched the film for the second time last night and, you know, watching it very much the first time I was very much just immersed in it and then I was you know looking at it with more of a filmmaker's eye this time and I just blown away by the just the the photography is stunning um 
and they did a gorgeous job then. Well, so, the, the like you know, <laughs> how much you guys like how, your experience leading up to making Gaza, like how much did was that important? It, obviously, very seasoned filmmakers. Um, that must have been incredibly important in terms of. But you see, we came out of from two sides completely and two very, very different sides. I mean, um, Andrew had never made a film before. He, he was a, a serious photojournalist of mm. world renowned, you know. So, mm. But he had access to Gaza before. He had been there. He knew it. He knew, he knew the place geographically. He knew a lot of people in there. Yeah. So, and he, 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 could, he had maneuvered through the, 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 the bureaucracy of getting in and out. So he brought all of that to the table, as okay. well as, you know, his photographic eye. Whereas I came to the table from a, from a documentary-making point of view, because mm. Andrew hadn't ever made a documentary before. So I was bringing kind of more of the, 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 the narrative unfolding, structural, you know, putting scenes together, you know, having that head on me, whereas mm. he was far more practically on the ground sort of head. So between the two of us, I think our skills, our shared set of skills, this, this, this skills or different skills, kind of created a, a good team on the ground there, you know. Um, but... But yeah, Andrew shot it all on a on an SLR 4K and an SLR and um, and did it in in the way that he was comfortable doing it, and it, it worked. You know, those we, we had conversations back in the early days about you know introducing um, uh, Andrew to, to film on film cameras necessarily, but you know we were, I was doing a lot of work on the Red at the time, mm. Epic, and I knew that camera. You know, and there was all sorts of other systems that we were thinking of putting in place that would have really helped even in terms of recording sound because that became a huge issue uh, in the early days. But at the end of the day, we decided I can't, you know, Andrew spent his life with a, with a, a stills camera in his hand and why, why change that because that's what he was absolutely comfortable and good at using. So we decided to stick with that and deal with the, the, the slight technical issues that, that came with that, you know. But, um, yeah, so, we, yeah, I suppose we, we just brought two different complete sets of skills to the table and they worked together, you know. Mm, mm. Yeah, you, that is really apparent. Another thing that I kind of noticed is um, there's all these power cuts uh, as uh, like, mm, like batteries and uh, you know laptops mm. and editing. Like how how did you nightmare is the word right. living fucking excuse the language nightmare was supposed to like <laughs> from day one we knew we were heading into a place to set up. We didn't only set up one edit suite, but Mick had a plan to set up three edit suites. Okay. Um, one for him to cut on and him to break down dailies, and two others that we hired two Gazan editors, mm. um, assistant producers, kind of editors, yeah. to literally sit with all of the footage that was shot in, in 2014 or 15 and subtitle it. Right. Because um, we had we were working for years with no translations at all. We couldn't actually afford to do transcripts. Okay. <laughs> we were kind of operating on the blind and on instinct about how people were moving and how, how people were saying and all of that. So it was a real, it was a real, um, it was a real job in hand to to think about setting that up to begin with. But then to set it up knowing that we were only going to get three hours of electricity a day was just mind-boggling at the time. So basically, our fixer had to rent a, a ginormous. Um, flipping what do you call them generators right but the generator was so big it couldn't be moved it wasn't mobile and it was about four blocks away okay. so we had we had a cable that ran from the generator across uh, 20 or 30 high rise apartments and buildings and then through the back window of our apartment which was on the 5th or 6th floor and that, that was our backup electricity source but but Mick was we were taking in the rushes every evening and Mick was setting up a transcode overnight and 
so often the poor fella would get up in the middle of the night just to check everything and one or other of the power sources would have dropped because he was juggling between two sets of cables all the time. One when the electricity was on and gas, we could use the power and a switch over then that we try and get at the right time between working and transcoding in the middle of the night that would switch over to the Jenny, which sometimes stopped, you know, they had to seal it up or whatever. So, uh, you know, you get per mix wandering to the wandering out of the bed at 8 o'clock in the morning after being up three times in the middle of the night going, no, it didn't work out, I have to set the transplant going again, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So it was constant or, you know, even, as you said, ch- charging batteries and all that, it was just charging phones even, you know, it was like you're yeah. with power banks and God knows what we could just to keep lines of communication open and keep the camera rolling, you know, so... Yeah, that was a daily struggle, and but you know what? You, you know, you, you're not you're not going to get out about that because we we were breezing in and out mm. to make a film, yeah, for six weeks or whatever. Yeah. We were leaving leaving behind two million people who were dealing with us every single day of their lives, you know. And you know, you can't you you have, you have families there with young kids. You, you they couldn't keep fridges going, obviously, because you know you can't. Food would spoil, so you know the extra hassle about having to just eat, you know, get fresh produce every day, and nothing, nothing able to be stored. No fresh produce able, to, you know, able to store produce. People trying to work with businesses with three hours electricity a day, hiring generators that they couldn't afford. You know, you know, depriving two million people of electricity for for twenty two or twenty hours a day is just a criminal act. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, because the, the ramifications of that go far and beyond what you think, you know, because you, you know you know yourself if the electricity goes off in your house, you forget that everything runs over electricity, everything, yeah. Like, yeah. until you don't have it, and then you realise you can't really do much <laughs> unless you have a battery to plug into, and you're kind of going, oh Jesus, like, yeah. you know, so it's it's lamplight, it's it's candlelight, it's torches, it's it's power banks, it's whatever, you know, it's yeah. whatever you can do to get by. But they're a hugely resourceful people, so they find ways and means, but they shouldn't have to at this point, you know. Mm. The worst end of it all was, was you know, the the, the the sewage treatment plants all, all require electricity. So the minute the electricity started going, they started packing up and, and not using and suddenly the one resource that all guys used to used to have um and was their lifeline was, was the beach and the sea, and suddenly that started becoming hugely polluted, and, and is, is to this day hugely polluted, and that has, you know it drove half the Gaza it drove Gaza back you know from the sea and and back from having that one little fresh air outlet where they could actually see the horizon, you know every now and again without a gunboat on it, even so they could pretend that, that at least they were normal, you know, or living under normal circumstances. So it's um. Yeah, it's it's horrible. The ramifications of not having electricity are horrible and and, and devastating to, to to people there, you know. And just like you know, there's there's a moment in the film where you, the bombs come, and it, it you know it's almost there's a sense of an inevitability. How how do you like? I how do you film in that situation? Well, you have a head on you like Andrew McConnell, who, right. who you know has been in many war uh, conflict zones and, and shot in them, and, and uh, you know people who can do that as a profession are a very particular type of person right. that are able to do that. You know, yeah. I remember Andrew saying to me once, you know, that somewhere along the line you psychologically have this notion that the camera stuck to your head is nearly a barrier from all all, all evils. You know, and it's obviously not, but. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like you, you have something between you and this, albeit, a, you know, four inches of a camera. But at the same time, you know, you can't, you can't explain that. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no textbook that's going to tell you how to shoot a war. 
<laughs> you know, you, you either have it in you to be able to do it or you don't. And he he has it has it in spades. You know, so um, that's that's it. That's the yeah. simple explanation to that. You, you know, yeah. you either can do that or you can't do it. Um, and there's not many people that can. And the ones who can risk their lives every day to to to, to feed the world with proper pictures to show situations and, and thankfully they're, they're, they're there for us to, 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 to see or to, to enable us to do that you know from the from the front line yeah. but no it's, a, it's it's something I don't know if you're born with it but certainly it's something that, that you have in you and um, and Andrew has had so yeah that, that's a simple answer to that Andrew but would you know where most people would be running away from, from a situation Andrew would be running towards it you know yeah um, and one of the things uh, is it would it be the northern or southern border that Egypt runs, and that doesn't mm. really you don't hear that much about that. What, like, did you have dealings with that? How does that? Well, no, work? We, we we just ruled, ruled out actually using it as a crossing point from, right. from early doors because Andrew had had gone in there. I think maybe once between two thousand, or maybe twice between two thousand and eleven and fourteen, the one fourteen. Yeah, um, well, not a war, the the attack, um, but. Um, no, it's 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 really problematic that border because it's it's open, it's closed, it's not open. You never know when it's open. There's a huge uh, danger in even getting to it. It's, it's a kind of banded land actually when you're trying to get to it on the on the Egyptian side. You know, yeah. you're at the mercy of you know corrupt police either side. You're ugh, it's it's a it's a complete lottery and it's it's not a very it's not very conducive to actually organising a, a film shoot and, and trying to, to realise it, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it isn't on the other side either, as we tend to realise, but at least there's some structure to it, albeit right. a crazy one that you have to manoeuvre, but at least you know what the craziness is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, on that side, you just don't. Right. It's completely haphazard. And so, I mean, we had an awful experience. We When we finished the film, we got accepted to Sundance, and we are all delighted with the world mm-hmm. premiere and all that. But Sundance came to us and said, what we'd absolutely love would be to take two people from your film or two characters involved in your film and bring them to, yeah. to the festival so that, you know, they can stand up and stage and change chat with the audience afterwards because we five screening, so they're expecting huge turnouts and, you know, a lot of people would get to hear them and blah, blah, blah. So, literally, they, and they were going to fund all of this, you know? Yeah. So, literally, they um, said, go for it and, and we'll do whatever we need to do to get it. So, you know, for two months... Um, all of the Gaza team, myself and Andrew and Nick and everyone, Brendan, you know, plus Hussein Cornboy, who was the festival director guy, who or one of the guys who was back in our film in Sundance, and the whole Sundance team, mm. along with attorneys from LA, uh, Francis Hayden, and uh, from a massive law group over there. We all tried for literally, literally two months to get Ali, the theatre character, who was one of the few people who could actually leave for a period of time just for his own personal circumstances. Now, one other cast character could for, for varying reasons. So we decided that Fabi, the fixer, was going to bring Ali over because he had the wherewithal to, to negotiate, you know, borders and permits and all the rest of it and get him over to America. Yeah. So for two months, we tried to get the two lads over to Sundance and failed. Wow. Like, I mean, serious serious, serious efforts from embassies, from law firms, from festival people, from people on the ground in, in Egypt, from consuls, from Irish consulates, like you name it. And then and then I got slagged at one, uh, I told that story after I got slagged, or we got slagged at one uh, Q&A for actually calling Gaza an open prison. 
and I told that story and I said like if, if all of that team had to spend two months trying to get a high security prisoner out on a weekend at least we would have managed it I think you know what I mean <laughs> but there was no way we were getting anyone out of yeah. Gaza yeah. under any circumstances so I mean you know yeah that's, and they actually there was a window of hope for one particular night where the border opened on the Egypt or they said they were opening up the border on the Egyptian side for a day and the lads got up in the middle of the night because we had the embassy in Cairo ready to give them immediate visas to America, temporary visas. They just had to walk in. You know, they, 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 we had agreed with them that they didn't have to go through any of the procedures. That there was going to be no delay. They literally turned up at the door, got straight into the office, got their visa stamped, and were out the door in ten minutes. So they were ready to go. So all they had to do was get to Egypt and get to Cairo. And they went down that night to the border with all of the paperwork, with some cash, because it was going to be bribes have, have to be given, obviously, with, with all of the, the paperwork they needed, with their clothes to do them, <laughs> and their bits to do them for a few days in Sundance. And they got there, and there was something like 15,000 people there. Okay. Uh, and it was a cattle mart, and they were just being herded from one place to another. And after about 10 hours starving and beaten physically, uh, psychologically, turned them back home and sent a message sent a video message to us that we played in the cinemas in, in Sundance to say we tried our best but that was the last that was the last effort we, we could give it and it didn't work so we we had the lads do video messages and we'd say them we'd say some of the characters um, after after the film showed in the cinemas and you know before Q&A's and that, that was nice to do but it was just horrible the way we couldn't actually get two human beings to a place and back again with us with with, uh, with all of that effort, you know. Yeah. And there's, there's just a sense of, like, you know, it's just constant humiliation, you know. Like, what what's the end goal? Like, there, and I know you don't have, there's no easy answers, but what, like, <laughs> what? It's control. It's control. pure control. Like, yeah. it's, it's just, it's just, they have absolute control over two million people. Like. Yeah. You know, they control everything. They control all their freedoms. But in the context of talking about Gaza, there's very little, there's very few of those. But mm. like they literally control their movement and their their lifestyles and their, you know, it's all the food has to come through there. You know, so everything has to come through there. You know, if you if you if you border off a country and don't let anybody in or out, apart from the people you want to let in and out, you're, you're effectively controlling two million people. Yeah. So it's 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 complete and utter occupation and and um, imprisonment. Like. You know, that, that blockade is just... I, I don't actually understand how the international community allow it to... I, I, for the life of me, I cannot understand how the whole world isn't up on arms about that, demanding that thousands have their freedom. Yeah. You know, freedom of movement, freedom of, of, of being able to get up in the morning and, and drive or fly or sail or yeah. all of the, the simple privileges that we all take for granted here as a drop of a hat. They just don't have... Yeah, you go down to the the airport there. Just I think there's pictures of Charlie Hockey and Yasser Arafat meeting there in, back in the day. Like it's just a pile of rubble, you know. That the airport was destroyed. So there's nowhere. Airport in Gaza, they can't leave with you know say three miles or three nautical miles. I think or maybe six at the moment. I'm not sure. It varies um, to see before they're before they're they're shot at and sent back. You know, they they can't move across either the border without serious amounts of um, paperwork and control and on the on the other. Circumstances. 
you know, everything that comes into Gaza in terms of goods is, is controlled and is vetoed and is, you know, organized and is, is, is monitored and is carefully, you know, orchestrated. Everything, everything. Mm. It's, it's I, I, you know, it defies reason how it's, to let happen in this day and age. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. I mean, there's serious issues and problems going on in many places in the world that are sticking in as badly as, as Gaza. But that particular instance of being imprisoned, yeah. I don't know if it happens anywhere else. And rightly so, and I don't know why it's still happening in Gaza or allowed to happen. But the international community has been miserably. I mean, there's, there's talk and there's, there's bulletins and there's statements, but where's it going? Where's it, I don't ever see it really having a massive impact to the, mm. to the degree where you, you can see some loosening of those restrictions in any great degree, you know? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I There was a, a recent film, I don't know if you saw it, Mayor, uh, which is in the West Bank. No, it's on me this. I haven't seen it yet, yeah. Is it, yeah, it's it's actually available on, on YouTube. Um, yeah. Very, di- obviously a very different situation um, and kind of ob- observational documentary about the mayor of Ramallah and there's almost kind of a, a comedic bent to it of, you know, trying to, of following the a year in the life of a mayor with, with almost, you know, trying to run a city with in in, in crazy circumstances. But he, he talks about the, you know, how can you, the, I, I, there was, a, there's a scene where these, some sort of mission from Germany of diplomats come to Ramallah and they're kind of asking what it would take for them to come to the negotiation table and uh, the mayor kind of just gives this talk this amazing speech about humiliation you know how can how can you deal with someone who's just stripping you of your dignity all the time and that that Think that I got that from Gaza, and watching it again uh, last night is just like I I don't know how we can stand for it, and oh, like you know you've done an amazing job uh, making this film. I I I I am so inspired by it, and the the courage um, that that it takes to make a film like this, and and hearing the challenges even that I couldn't imagine. Would you have any advice for for other aspiring filmmakers who want to make films that have an impact? Well, I don't think it. Yeah, yeah. it's just you know, go. <laughs> Everything I'm thinking of is kind of sounds quite past, you know. Because if you have if you have something that you're passionate about, then there's no and, and you, you have you have a filmmaking ability, then. There's nothing to really think about, <laughs> um, yeah. apart from trying to get some money and, and surround yourself with a good team. I mean, we had the tiny little team of myself and Andrew, Mick Mann, Brendan, Alison, Jimmy here on the ground in, in, in Ireland doing production management, and a great fixer, Paddy, and other fixers that, that uh, Andrew had, had used in the past during the war. And that was a tiny little team of people. And we all just shared one thing, and that was... A complete passion for 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 not passion is the wrong word, but a, a complete drive mm. to tell the story that we felt hadn't been told before. And you know, when you when you consider that the way we had to go about it, you couldn't actually map that out and 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 put that in a, in a lecture and say to people, well, when you come up with this obstacle, you do X, Y, and Z, because it was pure trial and error and making it up as we went along. You know, and yeah. um, all we knew was that. That core little group of people had the ability to to shoot, direct, 
produce, edit, and 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 make a, a high quality products that could go on the international market. We knew that because of our experience. That's all we knew. Because <laughs> every day you woke up, you had no idea what what the situation was going to throw at you. And if if you knew a, 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 a tenth of a, a fraction of it beforehand, you'd probably just throw the curse over your head and hope that it all would go away. You know what I mean? Because the, 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 it was just such a huge mountain to climb when you look back at it. But you take one step at a time. Is all you do, and you don't you don't look for the problems. You look for the solutions at every turn, and you keep going, and you keep going. And when you feel at your lowest ebb and think I can't do this anymore. You know, hopefully you have someone beside you on the team that can kind of go, all right, come on, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's a hard one to answer because, because there's no, there's no rule book for that sort of yeah. scenario, you know? We can, we can, we can all teach each other how to make better films and teach other people how to make good films. But when it comes to that type of a gig, yeah. And and you know you, you you might only do one of those in your life. You know I don't plan to only do one of them, but you might. Mm. Um, it's a different gig than any other gig you'll ever do. You know. Yeah. Um, so you're you're relying on your 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 own abilities and instincts an awful lot of time, and you're 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 operating. You're operating by you know sticking your pants, and it's like. All right, we've 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 sat on the on the slide and we're not going to get off till we're getting off. So, yeah, and um, let's go for it and, and throw caution to the wind and just let it go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I spent the morning kind of looking at some of your other work. The Dermot Healy documentary is beautiful, and yeah, um, for Dermot gone. Yeah, he should he should be still around, Dermot. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't know anything about him, and um, oh, it's a it's a yeah. beautiful piece of filmmaking. Um, but just wondering. Friend as well as a, really? an amazing writer too. Yeah, he was a great friend of my dad's. And my dad was a, was a, a, a part-time writer as well. And he and Dermot set up the first writing school, the Mark Bridge Writing School in Sligo back in the day. So ah. I first met, I first met, um, met Dermot in 1989. I remember I just come back from um, from London and come back to Ireland. And uh, I asked her we're mates ever since. But uh, he was a guest writer. Really? Yeah. 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 Really? But that was myself and Nick Mahan again. That's been a gorgeous job and that too. But yeah, I was uh, it was a. I'd been trying to make something on Dermot for years and years and years. I'd made a short. Yeah. She married all years before that, and that was a catalyst to wanting to do more. But the the, the, the notion of what exactly to to, to to fit it on never really jumped out. And I constantly called up to Dermot and kind of go, Dermot, we're going to make a film on you. What, what are you doing now? What are you writing? What are you? And next thing one day he just said, "Fuck me," he says, "I'm fucking going to finish this." Poetry books I've been writing for a while, and I said, How long? He gets up 10, 15 years. And I was, What? Sorry? A poetry book. And he said, No, actually, a poem. And I said, Hang on a second. <laughs> You've been writing a poem for 12, 15 years. What's, what's it about? He goes, You know, the fucking geese I'm obsessed with. It. And then suddenly it all started again. I started opening, right? There's, there's certainly a germ of an idea in here now yeah. to, to marry all those aspects together. And then. And then we came came up with it, but yeah, that was a, that was a lovely, a lovely experience. That and and uh, and the sperm as well. That's brilliant. I'm actually making a nature doc myself, so I, oh, I yeah. I've been chasing uh, Brent geese around, which are similar to the ones that you. Ah, yeah, lovely, lovely creatures. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, and have you got anything else coming up at the moment that you can tell us about? Or? Yeah, there's loads going on. I'm, I'm finishing off a doc series from Mind the Gas films at the moment, so. Unidentified bodies. It's all about uh, 
all the unidentified bodies that's lying all over this country and uh, in, in morgues and in coroner's offices and, and you know nobody knows who they are buried in unmarked graves and it's a very interesting kind of a forensic science kind of investigative sort of a, a series we're doing at the moment and we're just wrapping that up now after after um, uh, after kind of the long process of, of shooting and editing and that um, yeah and we're involved in a lot of few projects in, in the Middle East for you know looking for money and development and going through the usual okay. uh, wrangles that that entails and yeah, lots to talk about, lots of stuff coming up. So, yeah, we're um, busy out now. Great. Well, keep in touch and hopefully we'll, we'll have you on again. Um, but uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, again, it's just, it's an incredible piece of work. I, I, I'm so delighted to get to chat to you about it. Um, and best of luck with the, the future projects. Listen, thanks a million for having me on. And yeah, anytime, anytime at all, give us a shout. Great. Hi everyone, I just wanted to add in this extra bit after the interview um, off mic. I was talking to Gary and one of the things that come up is how can people help the situation in Gaza? Um, so I wanted to ask the man who would know best and he suggested a um, charity called Amjad and we're going to put the link for the GoFundMe page in there. Um, Gary wholeheartedly endorses them um i know with such a complicated situation some people are worried um about sending money there um so i just want to read this piece from gary uh from a, a letter that he wrote looking for the um the last you know in the last crisis uh i have no hesitation in recommending amjad a small but highly effective and efficient organization which was founded and is run by Fadi's mother. Fadi is their um, uh, fixer for the film. Um, uh, Samira Hanona. Samira is a remarkable woman who is tireless in her pursuit to help desperate and displaced families in Gaza and she has over the years built up an incredibly loyal, dedicated and extremely hard-working group of volunteers. Her or her team do not take any fees or expenses from any donations received. 100% of all the money, every single cent that is donated to Amjad goes straight into the most, straight into mostly food parcels for the poorest people on the Strip who are literally starving and who are today in more danger than ever. Um, So that comes on the foot of news that uh, there is likely to be more uh, bomb attacks on Gaza uh, in the in the coming weeks. Um, so yeah, if you feel that, that you want to um, help, uh, that is what Gary suggests. Um, I've don- donated myself, um, and of course, go and seek out the film Gaza to get a better understanding of it. Um, 